I'm Elena Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. More than 3,000 demonstrators in San Francisco recently created what's thought to be the largest street mural ever made. The 2,500-foot-long, 50-foot-wide mural turned five city blocks into scenes of community-proposed solutions for a warming world. The action was held on the occasion of the Global Climate Action Summit being held in San Francisco, spearheaded by the Californian governor, to bring together states, cities, businesses, and community groups to discuss how to achieve climate goals set by the Paris Agreement. Yes, this really happened in the United States. And the mural wove together 50 scenes depicting solutions to climate injustice, each put together by a different community group with a border designed by Indigenous artist and ecologist Edward Willey. And here's a cool dimension to this action. The entire mural is temporary. The street art was made using charcoal from areas affected by the recent devastating wildfires, along with tempera paint and raw clay sourced just outside of San Francisco. So why, you ask, am I talking about this on Grandmother's on the Move? Well, the protesters didn't have a permit to paint the streets. So a group of Indigenous-led grandmothers faced off with police to block the roads for five hours while the muralists finished. The Society of Fearless Grandmothers held the ground and not one protester was arrested. And today, I have the great pleasure to speak to the founder of the Society of Fearless Grandmothers, Penny Opal Plant. Penny is one of the co-founders of Idle No More, SF Bay, a co-founder of Movement Rights, and a signatory of the Indigenous Women of the Americas Defending Mother Earth Treaty. She's worked for over 35 years to ensure that the sacred system of life continues in a manner that is safe, sustainable, and healthy. Her mother is a Yaqui Mexican, her father undocumented Choctaw, Cherokee, and European. She says in her bio that no members of her family have ever lived on a reservation, and she lives in the unincorporated Contra Costa County and sees the Chevron refinery in Richmond, California every day. Welcome, Penny. It's just an honor to have you join me today. Well, thanks so much, Alana. I'm glad that you reached out on the Facebook page for the Society of Fearless Grandmothers. I mean, there has rarely been a phrase that I have loved more than the Society of Fearless Grandmothers. And I have so many things I want to ask you, Penny, but let me start with a couple of things that struck me, if I can, in your short bio. Because Mm -hmm. you're one of the founders of the San Francisco Bay Idle No More and a co-founder of Movement Rights. And I wondered if you could tell me about your involvement in those two really important movements. Sure. And it's Idle No More SF Bay. That's our Facebook page and our website is idlenomoresfbay.org. So, of course, when Idle No More kicked up up in your part of North America, it quickly spread around the world. And for a while here in late 2012 and 2013, there were Idle No More actions happening almost every weekend here in 
the Bay Area and Northern California. And by March of 2013, a group of Indigenous grandmothers who've been praying together every month since 2007 decided that we would like to have a more formal I Don't Know More group that would include a lot of younger people. And so our I Don't Know More group was started by these grandmothers, including myself. And we've gone on to do some really powerful work and mentoring of these younger, primarily Indigenous activists. Now we're seeing the result of them becoming internationally known leaders in the climate justice movement. And in 2008, a good friend of mine, Shannon Biggs, and I co-founded Movement Rights. And Movement Rights is an organization that helps communities and tribes align human law with natural law. Because we can see the result of human laws violating the laws of Mother Earth in that we're destroying the climate that we need to exist, not only us, but all of our non-human relatives, that there's about 200 of which go extinct every day around the world. And that includes microbes and tiny little beings that we don't get to see. And so we have been instrumental in working with the Ponca Nation of Oklahoma recently, the last couple of years. Uh, This January, they passed a law, the first type of law in tribal law in the country that bans anything that harms the earth their water and soil, essentially. So it's a huge, big deal. And right now, my partner in Movement Rights is in Ecuador, along with Casey Camp Horanek, one of the elders and leaders of the Ponca Nation, at the 10-year anniversary of the International Summit on the Rights of Nature. So it's a growing movement. There's a declaration on the rights of nature, Mother Earth, that's been making its way through the UN since that time. So what I also want to say about the work that I do for climate justice and indigenous rights is that it's all volunteer. While I've been an activist since the very, I think about 1980 or 81, I learned early on that for me, being a paid activist wasn't the right way for me to go, that it was involving money with my spiritual practice. And for me, there's nothing more important than ensuring that there's a future for all the babies to come. So I started Uh, making businesses to support myself. And I still have a very successful business. And so all the work that we do in Idle No More SF Bay and that I do with movement rights, it's all volunteer work. Oh, that's extraordinary and really principled way of approaching it. I, I have to ask you, what kind of businesses did you start? They're always small retail businesses. The first one was a rock shop in Oakland. My parents were appalled because I'd been working at a local university and I kept getting promoted until I was the director of personnel. I didn't have a college degree, so they were putting me through school. Of course, my parents were delighted. I come from a you know blue collar working class part of town. And when I told them that I was going to quit this incredible job and go buy this 93-year-old woman who'd just passed away, who's a friend of mine, her rock shop, they thought that I'd lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> they might not have been entirely alone in that. <laughs> How did the rock shop go? Well, you know, as things work, um, it's quite a long story that I won't go into here. But that whole kind of weird new age thing started here in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. And it was starting right at the time that I bought that shop. And so it became an immediate success. 
Okay, I love that story. And, so and I assume that that took you on to other businesses. Yeah, I've had two Native galleries. My current business is a Native American gallery that I've had since 1991. And so I've had five successful small businesses. And I'm fifth generation small business owner in my family. So it's what I grew up around and knew how much work it takes and knew how to do it. And if I didn't know how to do it, I had lots of folks, family members to ask. Amazing. And there's something else I wanted to talk to you about from your bio because, and I know it's a short truncated version that I've read. You say that no members of your family have ever lived on a reservation. And I wonder what the significance of that is for you and and what we should understand from that. Right. So here in the United States, tribal nations that got forcibly removed from their territories and forced onto reservations were all given a number. And it's the only group of people in the United States that has to have a number to prove who they are. And so over the, you know, the decades and decades since that system started, there's been interesting developments from both sides. So of course, people whose families have lived on the reservations since they started have the number that allows them, especially if they're artists, to say that they are a Native American artist under the law. And so so there was a, a law passed in the United States, I think it was 91 or 92, that said that no one that don't have that number can say that they are Native American artists. And so at that time, there were a lot of imports coming in from Korea and the Philippines and, you know, Asia that said Native American made or Zuni or Navajo or whatever. And that law initially was in response to that. But what happened as a result of that law was that a lot of families and people who either left the reservation and their children didn't get enrollment numbers or their children and grandchildren were being stolen and put into boarding schools. So there's all those folks that may not even know what their tribal affiliation is that don't have that number, that even if they are artists and look indigenous and have no kind of a history in their family, they are not allowed to say that they're Native American artists. That's the broad messaging around that. My family on my dad's side left the South before the forced march of the Trail of Tears up to Oklahoma and settled in Northeast Texas along the Oklahoma border. And where a lot of families did that were Choctaw, Cherokee, Chickasaw, um, Muscogee Creek. So that's where my family settled. And then my mom's family is from Mexico and on my grandfather's family. They're Yaqui. And on my grandmother's family, she grew up in Guanajuato, Mexico, in a small town that was the only Indian reservation in the entire country of Mexico. She w- wouldn't tell anybody what her tribal nation was. Like a lot of people at that time, you know, mm-hmm. that whose children were being stolen and abused. I have a lot of sympathy for families that don't know who they are because their grandparents, great-grandparents, whoever they were, wanted to protect them from being stolen and abused. Just, you know, the same story up in Canada. Yes, exactly the same story. Long explanation, sorry. (laughs) No, but but an important one because those atrocities have an enormous legacy. 
And let me take us to the demonstration in a kind of abrupt way. But I really want to hear about the demonstration in the Society of Fearless Grandmothers. What moved you to start the Society of Fearless Grandmothers? Our Idle No More SF Bait Group. I wish we had started to keep track of all the direct actions that we started doing immediately after we formed in March of 2013. But we didn't. But we have conducted untold numbers of nonviolent direct actions, sometimes with arrestables. That's what we call them, arrestables, because it's It's kind of like a festival where you get arrested (laughs) at five different refineries along the Northeast Bay here that people did not even know were there. And we also organized, inspired by Cleo and her daughter and the Tar Sands Healing Walks, we organized a series of healing walks over a period of four years, connecting one fossil fuel impacted community to another, where we communicated with the police. I've always been a really good police liaison, where we were able to diffuse tense situations. During Standing Rock, we did, I don't know how many huge actions we organized in San Francisco. One of them was over 5,000 people where we completely shut down the Army Corps of Engineers building in downtown San Francisco all day. So in my role as a person who can help diffuse tense situations with Homeland Security and other types of law enforcement and do it in a way where we've actually made relationships with different police officers, sheriffs, homeland security, where when they see us, they know us. And they know that we're not going to destroy property. They know that we have something in place if young, because it's usually young men that show up that are masked, that start destroying property, that we have a mechanism in place to move them out of the area that's nonviolent and powerful. And David Solnit is the mastermind behind those 50 plus murals that were made that day. And when David and I, we were talking about how we were going to protect the streets from the police in order to do the murals, then I said, well, I'll just start organizing grandmothers to do street safety. That's what we called it. You know, I was thinking and thinking about it and then organized a training and really, I really did. I just threw up the Society of Fearless (laughs) Grandmothers Facebook page. And then the 1,000 Grandmothers, which is an international group, the Bay Area 1,000 Grandmothers reached out to me. So I started organizing trainings with them to train women on how to do what I do in talking with the police. Like it's really important to not have any anxiety or fear or anger, but to move into that situation with a huge open heart. And being fearless is probably the most important thing. And then to do role plays around that and to also role play around street safety, because sometimes we have to divert traffic. And we use orange flags like real safety, traffic safety people that work for the cities to help people navigate the street that we're shutting down. So that's how that all came up. At this point, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that website because it seems like the 1,000 Grandmothers Bay Area are wanting to have that be an adjunct and that's fine with me if they do that but there's no decision made so I haven't been responding very much to people that are hungry. I mean there's people all over the country women that understand where we're at in the history of human beings on Mother Earth's belly. That as older women we have a very powerful role to play. Pretty much every single police officer or you know any law enforcement that we talk to are going to be younger than us. And so there's a 
certain type of authority that grandmothers have when they decide to step into that. If women don't automatically have that, it's something that they can choose to step into. Most of us see grandmothers as loving, kind, strong beings that are soft. My grandmother was not like that. (laughs) What was your grandmother like? My mom's mom walked here to from Guanajuato, Mexico to the San Francisco Bay Area with two babies, an infant and a two-year-old looking for her husband who she never found and wound up settling here. And when I was five years old, my brother and sister and I, I'm the oldest, were staying in her house. And um, I think it was the first time we were allowed to go play on the street with the other kids. I was five. And they beat us up. And we came back into the house. I came back with my brother and sister in tow crying. And my grandmother looked at me and she said, what are you crying about? And I said, they beat us up, grandma. And she goes, you better get right back out there and find a big stick. You don't ever come into my house crying ever again. Go. Wow. (laughs) So I had to go out and I followed her instructions. I found a big stick. I showed them they couldn't hurt us anymore and they never bothered us again. She was strong and loving and was a, a wonderful caregiver who most of my cousins referred to her as being a mean woman, but I was the closest grandchild to her. And I just saw her as being this really strong, no nonsense. You're not going to take advantage of me, my family, or my community kind of person. You know, you could have chosen so many things to call the group, but you chose grandmothers as a sort of a label to draw women in and for women to identify themselves. And that has intention behind it. And is that what you were drawing on, what you're talking about, this kind of strength and no nonsense and this concern for the planet and for the younger generation? Absolutely. Yeah. And also, you know, my, I mean, I, my friends are strong, powerful grandmothers. Right. Like the women that are closest to me are really powerful, strong, older women. And, you know, I felt like, well, we definitely have something to offer as strong Indigenous women. You know, any Indigenous woman on the planet is only alive because of the strength of her grandmothers, because the world colonization tried to kill us all off. Mm-hmm. And so we come from a long line of grandmothers grandmothers who survived in whatever way that they could so that we could be here today. And I think that that kind of history or any group of people who've experienced war, genocide, or any kind of horrific ancestral experiences that made them who they are today, has a certain kind of authority that can be shared with other women who maybe their families didn't have to go through anything like that. But how at this time, because truly it's the end of the world as we know it. I mean, we're either going to be able to mitigate climate disruption or, you know, millions upon millions of people will die. I mean, either way, millions of people will die, but there will be less millions of people if we're able to rein in the fossil fuel industry, if we're able to make sure that our young people at direct actions are safe, you know. And when I describe fearless, I also describe during these trainings that, you know, we are the front lines. Older women must be the front lines. If there is a a line of SWAT police, you know, riot police, whatever, if that's the line that we're facing, then older women must be the first face that they see. It'll be excellent.
excellent if those women already have had relationships made with those law enforcement officers. Because if they're instructed to beat the front line, they will have to be beating grandmothers that they have spoken with, who they have heard pray for them and their families. Because we always do that. We understand that we're all related. So at every action, we pray for the people in the buildings or at the refinery or facility. We pray for law enforcement, for their safety. We pray for their families and their children. And we're authentically praying because we understand that it's going to take all of us to move through the eye of this needle that we need to get through in order for grandchildren to have anything that even closely experiences what we've enjoyed in our lifetimes, which isn't looking like they're going to. And it's such a brilliant and humane and relational strategy. And I wonder if you can give us a sense of what happened at that demonstration with the murals. What did it actually look like when the police came forward and you and the other fearless grandmothers were standing there? This was a very different type of experience than any of the other ones that our Idle No More group has organized anywhere. And it wasn't Idle No More SFA. I mean, it needed to be the grandmothers because we wanted all of our young people in that march. And because Idle No More SFA was on the leadership team of organizing that day for an entire year, I wanted to make sure that especially our younger people and the other grandmothers were in the very front of that march behind the California Indians. So, you know, I was looking around going, well, a lot of our grandmothers aren't going to be here. They're going to be in the march. And that when came to me, things come to me. I'll just be really honest. Things come to me. That's clear. Uh, So I am a fearless person. I was forced to become a fearless person from a young child. And so to me, that fearless grandmother title is just natural. And so there were four trainings, I think. And I did the first two. And then a good friend of mine died. I needed to leave town for the week and a half before the eight. And so the other grandmothers who did really well in the trainings, the 1,000 grandmothers, they took up that responsibility and they did a great job. I was just so relieved that they were able to do that. So that morning we get there and we had made these big long banners that said street safety, planet safety. And so they were long enough to cover the street. So we met in the morning, we had a prayer. Um, That's how we always roll. We always have a prayer. And then we identified which streets needed to be shut down first. And the first young officers that showed up were fine. It got a little sketchy as more and more streets were being closed off. And we needed to start early in the morning. We started at seven because the 30,000 people that were coming in from the march were going to help paint. All of those murals had to be chalked out first. And Edward Willie and his crew had to make all of the borders first. And interestingly enough, it was not the San Francisco police. Oh, I see. So it wasn't the San Francisco police. It was like the parking police. Yeah, but they are police. They had a very different type of authority, I'll say. Um, (laughs) You know how how you meet somebody and you realize that, oh, that person really needs to be right. They need to stand on that position of they have to be right no matter what. So that was my experience with them. You know, and we prayed and we did everything that we normally do. And they had a really hard time hearing what we were doing. But it wound up working out okay. Nobody let anybody through that wasn't supposed to come through the streets. Nobody was arrested. And part of the tension of that day was there was a very high profile wedding happening there at City Hall that afternoon. And the mayor and some other city officials 
officials were really upset that we just went and did what we wanted to do anyway. You know, as for us, as Indigenous people, whenever we go, we've done street murals in San Francisco before, not that many, but whenever we go do street murals or go do an action, if we're asked, oh, do you have a permit? And I always say, well, no, this is our land. We don't need a permit. We're all Native American. It's asserting our authority and our sovereignty and the history of colonization. And they actually don't really know what to say about that. So they kind of back off a little bit. Yeah, it's a powerful assertion to which they probably don't have an answer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I just have to ask, and also to understand, so the thousand grandmothers in the Bay Area. The Society of Gurus Grandmothers is everyone. 1,000 Grandmothers Bay Area is everyone. But our I Don't Know More SF Bay group, the grandmothers there was created by a group of indigenous grandmothers that have been praying together since 2000. 2007. Okay, I understand. I've talked to many activist grandmothers around the world. It's one of the reasons for this podcast, struggling for economic justice, democracy, women's rights, and each of them have a particular story to tell about how their activism is different now that they have grandchildren or how it changed when they had grandchildren. And I wondered, Penny, what's your experience? My grandson is nine years old. His life and future is wrapped up in everything that I'm doing to ensure clean air, clean water, clean soil, and a vibrantly healthy future for all the babies to come. And one of my inner drives since I became an activist in the early 80s has always been about ensuring a safe future for everyone. And I was raised with two foundational principles. We're all related and everything is connected. And they sound so simple, but I can tell you that when those two principles are embodied the way that I have embodied them, it is a very powerful driving force, at least for me in my life. And my activism started around nuclear power and weapons after seeing Heldon Caldecott. Um, so it was, I think it was 1980 in San Francisco. And I suddenly realized that since 1948, that human beings had acquired the power to destroy everything, all of life on Mother Earth's belly. And that had a profound impact on me. That's when I became an activist. I quit my job. I went to work in the movement for a little while and then realized that, as I mentioned before, that wasn't the right place for me. But my activism continued. I know that some people have a sense of long, long spans of time, like me. I have a sense of every blade of grass on Mother Earth's belly has older DNA than human beings. We are the youngest natural life form to exist here. And we, like two-year-olds, are causing the most harm. And not just to our own species, but even more to all of the other species which we're related to. And that is my motivation, in addition to loving my grandson, in addition to the heartbreak of knowing that he and in his lifetime will not be able to walk into a grocery store like he can now and have all of the variety of food to eat from all over the world, that that is going to be greatly diminished in his lifetime. Like I'm definitely a realist. Right. I know what's coming. Mm -hmm. And I know that as older women, more than men, more than younger women, that it is our responsibility because we have lived lives. We have done what we needed to do with our personal lives. And now it's time for us to take those risks, to embody fearlessness, to embody great love for all that we hold dear. 
and to put ourselves on the front lines. And for those at risk on the front front lines to move out of the way and let us be there, ask us to be there, invite us to be there. Because the law enforcement, it is so much easier for them to take their billy clubs or tasers or guns with rubber bullets or whatever Mm -hmm. and shoot our young men and shoot our young people. But it is really a much more difficult thing when they see older women on the front line standing before them, singing for them, praying for them, asking them, do you have children? Do you have grandchildren? Because that's what we're here. We're here for the babies that you love. And that's what we do. And that's why it's so important. And I'm so glad to see how powerfully the Society of Fearless Grandmothers is resonating. I hear similar stories around the world where grandmothers and older women are stepping in to make the space for younger generations to do the activism they need to do with some sphere of safety Mm -hmm. so that their voices get heard and they don't get drowned out in the moment of confrontation. That's also a powerful part of this, isn't it? That it isn't just about the confrontation between state and activists, but that also it it allows some space for the messages to actually be amplified and be heard. Grandmothers can buy some space in a sense or buy some room. Yeah. And you know, there has been periods of time in history when police officers and law enforcement have joined those standing up for whatever rights they're standing up for. You know, civil rights, human rights, the right to go to school, the right to life, the right to protect the water, the right to protect, you know, your home from being demolished because a pipeline's coming through. There have been cases where law enforcement has said, I'm going with you. And so I think that as we move forward and as there are more severe climate disruptions happening, as we meet law enforcement with this type of fearless love and compassion for everything and everyone like grandmas have, you know? that they there will be an opening for law enforcement to join us. We're creating that opening because the only way through the eye of the needle is for all of us to stand together looking how we're going to get there together. Otherwise, the systems that exist today, capitalism, consumerism, the type of education that leaves out creativity and imagination, like that's not the future that's no. going to take us forward to safety. The damage and the threat to the environment is so extreme, but also the persistent denial and recognition of Indigenous people's rights is equally persistent and often extreme. And I wondered as a grandmother, how do you see the way forward now? I see the way forward. It's rough. It's rough. Mm-hmm. I probably, as you do, I mean, Naomi Klein is your sister-in-law, so you know a lot, I'm sure. We know what's coming sooner than climate scientists thought they were that they're now recognizing, oh, yeah, we're already with climate way ahead of where we thought we were. Yes. As an Indigenous person, I see these false solutions like the carbon trading mechanisms, cap and trade, you know, the forest offsets and all of that being such a huge false solution and shell game that allows the fossil fuel industry to continue. It's ridiculous to me. Here we are on the verge of creating a future for the people that are making these decisions right now that they don't even care about the future of their own grandchildren. 
but they're the ones that are making these decisions, allowing the harms to continue that will continue now for thousands and thousands of years. And so I work on being inspired as much as possible. I think that that's the best way for me to move forward. I'm constantly looking not only at the latest climate reports, but also at the places around the world that are having successes with technology or changes in their local culture or moving people from places that are even now at risk from rising waters or hurricanes or whatever. I don't think that there is any one way forward. And it feels like to me that when there is a critical mass of us, of humans standing together going, okay, here we are. How do we move forward together? put our heads together and our hearts together, whatever geographic place we are, and say, what's going to work here? I don't think there's any one person that has the answer. I certainly don't. But I trust that there are brilliant minds that are here and that haven't even been born yet that will take us collectively through the eye of that needle. Well, that is a beautiful way to close. It gives a sense of optimism for the future that I think we all have to hold on to in this moment. Yeah, Yeah, we sure do. Well, thank you so much, Penny. And I thank you for all the work that you do. Well, thank you, Alana. It was truly a pleasure. I appreciate you reaching out to me. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.